0: Hi there, and welcome to the Jeff MacArthur podcast for Thursday, October the 15th. Coming up, how the world economy has changed due to the pandemic. Ontario pharmacies struggle with the flu shot demand, as well as new rapid tests are coming to Ontario, and is playing hockey during the pandemic, minor hockey, a good idea for kids? All of that coming up right now on the pod. WestJet with some big changes you should be aware of. WestJet announcing they are eliminating 80% of its service in Atlantic Canada. That means about 100 jobs lost and flights to a number of Atlantic cities will no longer be available. And this has sparked renewed concern for Canada's airline industry. For more on this, we're joined now by Ian Lee from Carleton University. He joins us here on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Ian, good afternoon. Uh, good afternoon, Jeff. All right. Obviously, uh, WestJet, like so many airlines, they've been struggling during the pandemic. But do we know why they decided to cut service in the East in particular, Ian?
1: Um, I think it's, uh, it's it's pure numbers. Um, the uh, Maritimes is much more thinly populated. Far fewer people live in the Maritimes in plain English. Uh, remember, Ontario has 38% of uh, the population of Canada, 38 Quebec has 20, so the two provinces alone have basically two-thirds of Canada. And then you throw in the western provinces. I mean, the Maritimes is very tiny. Um, New Brunswick is a half a million people. It's half the size of my city. City of Ottawa is a million. All of New Brunswick is a half a million. All of Newfoundland and Labrador is half a million. And the PEI is a quarter of a million, 250,000. So... The two things, I mean, that's caused this, that's brought this about, and it's been driven purely by government decisions, the the Liberal government in Ottawa has made the decision not to provide uh, support specifically for the airline industry, unlike the European countries. I looked it up a moment ago. They've uh, put out so far 25 billion billion euros, which is a staggering amount of money, and they're not finished uh, into the various European airlines to keep them afloat. Uh, and they haven't uh, done that. The government has not done that here. And then, secondly, the maritime governments, the four provinces in the in the east coast, um, have very deliberately, as we know, on, upon the advice, consultation, whatever word we want, with public health, have decided to create what they call the the Atlantic bubble. That is to say, they've tried to stop essentially all movement of people in and out of the maritimes. Now, it's not a hundred percent, but it's it's pretty close. It's pretty close. And uh, so. If you stop all people moving in and out, or almost everyone moving in and out, basically what you've done is you've killed the revenue side of the airline because they get their revenue from customers. And if you're saying nobody can fly in and out, you can't drive in or out, you can't fly in and out, well, what you've done is you said to the airlines, you don't have any customers. Mm-hmm. And on the other side, the government has said, and we're not going to support you. So you've got no cash flow whatsoever. Well, of course, they're not going to keep on flying planes if they've got no customers and they've got no cash flow. And uh, so this was brought about very deliberately by government decision. And why I'm, and I'm obviously sounding critical. And the reason I am critical, uh, I did my uh, Ph.D. thesis 30 years ago in the post office. I'm not changing gears at all. I mean, the, the post office was, for the first 200-odd years of our country, was the railroad, the airline, the telephone, And the telegraph and the internet all rolled into one. It was the transportation and the communication system. It was the only way of communication until more modern technologies came along. And in the modern times, I'm talking post-Second World War, really post-60s, 1960s, in such an enormous country, second largest country on the planet Earth, 8,500 kilometers wide, the only way you can realistically, incredibly move people back and forth quickly and efficiently is airlines. And and when somebody says, Oh, well just take the car I mean it's almost being callous to say that to somebody who lives in Vancouver and their ailing elderly mother is in a nursing home in Halifax. Sure. It's just not going to drive. It's seven days to get across the, the ruddy country.
0: Yeah, so having said that, and it's so important, obviously, you know, uh, Canada in a lot of ways is a nation of regions, and we need to do everything we possibly can to stay connected. So yeah. does government need to, much like you just cited over in Europe, do you think the, the Canadian government, it's time for them to step in?
1: It's absolutely essential. Um, and what I'm arguing is that airline travel service is not a luxury May, some may have, and the government may have this stereotype, it's you know, just for rich people to go to Florida for the winter break. Airline travel is absolutely essential in our country. Second largest landmass in the world, lowest density of people per square kilometer in the world. Four. Four people per square kilometer. Europe is 500 people per square kilometer. They've got buses, they've got trains, they've got everything there because they're little tiny postage stamp countries all side by side with gazillions of people. That's not us. We're the opposite of Europe. We absolutely must have airlines. And so it's absolutely essential that the government step in. I think they're going to have to set aside. I I believe that they're being driven by their green ideology. It's the same reason they won't put any money into the oil and gas companies, because the MPs in the urban areas of Toronto are, are have said very publicly we don't want any money going to them, and I think that they're motivated similarly with airlines because they're seen or perceived to be significant contributors to GHG emissions, and so I think it's they're putting ideology ahead of the greater public good, which is that airline travel in. Canada is absolutely an essential
0: service. All right. And if they do not step in, if the government does not step in, do you think what we heard from WestJet earlier today, is this just the first of uh, many announcements, many cuts, not only for WestJet, but maybe Air Canada and the rest of the airline industry?
1: I think it's inevitable. They're going to continue to cut off the appendages, if I can put it that way, where the smaller regions, where there's smaller, lighter populations. I mean, quite bluntly, the, the heaviest traveled routes will be the last to close. I mean, the toronto to ottawa toronto to vancouver you know the big cities to other cities it'll retrench to maybe five cities that have air travel in this country uh because there's enough critical mass there that you can maybe get a flight a day going but if their government does not step in we're going to we're going to have more flights close and just very quickly jeff for those who say well so what you know when it's all over you just flick the switch and you turn them all back on it doesn't work like that It does not work like that. It took years and years and years to build these uh, routes up. And, And if, well, not if, when the coronavirus is over, you can bet that now that they've gone through this experience, the airlines are going to be using much more sharper pencils to determine which routes they're going to go into. And they're only going to go into routes where they think that there's a really good assurance that they're going to succeed on those routes, which means that the smaller uh, more rural, more remote communities across the country, northern Ontario, the Mar- much of the Maritimes, uh, rural parts of uh, the, pro- the, pro- the western provinces will lose their tra- uh, plane service just as we saw them lose their bus service over the last 10, 20, 30 years. So we shouldn't be too cavalier or too flippant about saying, oh, well, you know, don't worry about it. You know, they'll, mm-hmm. they'll come back you know, after this is over. I-, I don't think it will come back to some of these smaller communities.
0: Joined by Ian Lee from Carleton University. Well, we have you here, Ian. Wanted to also discuss with you a fairly interesting piece in The Economist, which yeah. is, uh, well, it's heavy reading for me. It's probably light, I know, bathroom reading for you. Well, uh, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> but the uh, headline that caught our attention was basically, thanks to the pandemic, the world economy will never be the same, which sounds, I think, to the layperson maybe a little over the top. Yeah. But is it true?
1: Um. I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, I don't go for apocalyptic stuff. You know, no, the world's not coming to an end. No, we're not all going to die. And no, we're not all going to fall off the cliff into poverty and be reduced eating cat food and dog food. Of course not. But is, are there going to be fundamental changes? I would rather put it that way, that there are going to be some fundamental changes in some areas of of the economy and society. Uh we just discussed one with airline travel. I I don't think that airline travel is going to be coming back to remote communities or smaller communities anytime soon. There's one change. Uh, The work world is going to change. I have actually had quite a few debates in Ottawa with uh professors and students on this very subject and business people uh in terms of the the you know the Zoom and, and uh remote learning and remote working. I don't believe that when it's over that we're all going to return to the downtown or to the work building, to the high-rise buildings. I'm also not of the view that we're all going to be staying at home either. I think that the downtown could lose, let's say, 30 I've just said arbitrarily, 30 percent of the people that used to be in the downtown. Well, if you shrink the downtown, if one-third less are going into downtown Toronto or downtown Calgary or Montreal or Ottawa, that's going to significantly and profoundly change the downtown, the, you know, the mass transit systems will probably be losing money like crazy. The small businesses that sold the coffees and the sandwiches to all those people, it's going to change profoundly. So it's going to change travel. It's already changing the travel industry. So it's going to change education. You know, we're not going to go back to 100% in the classroom. We'll probably go back to a hybrid model. So there's going to be some fundamental structural change uh, post uh, COVID, I mean, I think the biggest one will be to the healthcare system that we've kind of taken it for granted all our life. All my life, you know, we said, "Yeah, there's the odd illness, but hey, the healthcare is always there, and you know, it's always going to be there to look after us." And now we've realized that there are holes and there are. There are gaps, and mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a lot more money going into preventive and into vaccines and that sort of thing. So there's going, we're going to be looking at a very different world um, in those dimensions.
0: Uh, okay. Going uh, let me ask you just quickly, finally, here, because this report in The Economist says by the end of the year, world output will be 8% lower than it would have been without the pandemic. Yeah. And in comparison, they say the recession of 2009... The world economy shrank by just 0.1%, 0.1%. I mean, that is an incredible difference.
1: It is. And if I can just remind your listeners, because I read the 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 odd op-ed, and it just drives me crazy when I read these op-eds, and they say, let's stop talking about GDP, and let's stop talking about this endless focus on GDP. Let's talk about real things that affect real people. GDP is the totality of all the wages and all the salaries and all the incomes of all the people. In a country. So when we say GDP, it's just a shortcut for saying how much you and I are making. So when we say that GDP is going down by that much, that means people have taken a huge hit. They have less money to buy bread and milk and groceries and pay their rent. That's what a decline in GDP means. And and I don't think people really. I mean, some people, most people understand that, but there's some people that don't get that. So this has been an enormous catastrophic hit. I mean, we look back at, at to 2009, and you know, we thought the world was coming to an end, and you know, because big banks were going down. But the GDP hit, and yes, it was very painful, especially to those who lost their jobs. I'm not trivializing it, but that was nothing compared to this. Um, and it's because. And the key difference is this, Jeff, it's in our heads. And I don't mean by that the COVID isn't real. Don't misunderstand me. I think it's very real. But what I mean is we are self-censoring. I am Exhibit A. I'm staying in my house 99% of the time. I have not been in a shopping center since March. The only building I enter now in the last nine months is a grocery store. And there's millions of people doing just like I'm doing. Well, if I'm not going into all those shopping centers and going into those restaurants and bars, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that means I'm not spending money in those places. But my spending is somebody else's salary. Mm -hmm. That's how the the economy works. So that huge hit that you just quoted, that's because all of the me's, (laughs) all of the Ian's are doing exactly the same. We're not going into shopping centers and shopping. Sure, we're buying some stuff online, but the amount we're not buying in the stores is not offset by the increase in the e-commerce. It isn't a one-for-one. You know, if the sales have dropped by 10 in the stores, our our e-commerce has gone up by maybe 2. And that's why there's a decline in GDP, which means there's a decline in the incomes of people and so it's going to be very interesting to see how this unfolds and and how long can government go printing the stuff it's all, you know it's one thing to run up fifty billion for a, a year or two but if you're running up a third of a trillion deficit like we're doing and you run that up for two or three years at some point you're going to run into problems i predict with the capital markets and smaller countries have done so like like argentina or, or venezuela smaller countries do have to borrow their money too and and we could down the road not yet we're not there. But if this continued for a very significant period of time, the crisis and in the way we're responding to it that required government intervention of this magnitude, and I'm talking third of a trillion dollar deficits, at some point, you know, anyone who thinks we've got a free lunch going here, <laughs> it isn't it isn't so. At some point, we'll hit a wall.
0: Yeah. Well, now, well you know, listen, these are yet. yeah, these are all important and quite frankly troubling uh, questions. Ian, always appreciate the time and the perspective. Uh, thanks so much uh, for joining us this afternoon. Thanks, Jeff. Be well. There's a Ian Lee from the sprout School of Business at Carleton University. Okay, I want to talk about flu shots now, because that's also making headlines across the province on this Thursday afternoon. The Minister of Health has said that there's plenty of supply of the vaccine, but we're hearing from pharmacies that uh, they don't have enough at individual uh, pharmacies. There's been long lineups, uh, long waits, and some people complaining that they can't get in to get a flu shot. And there certainly is no question that demand for the flu shot has been surging at pharmacies, particularly in COVID hotspots, such as here in Toronto, with health officials urging us all more than ever this year to get our flu shot. And joining us now is Sandra Hanna. She is the CEO of the Neighborhood Pharmacy Association of Canada and joins us now here on Global News Radio. Sandra, thanks for hanging on and thanks for joining us.
2: Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me
0: all right let's start off with the obvious question i mean we're hearing from the health minister that there's plenty of vaccine is there a flu shot shortage in this province or not
2: well we are not aware of any flu shot shortage what we are seeing this year is is not a shortage but rather just an increase in demand and an increase in the front loading of that demand um so you know we we know that this year is one like no other we know that um, you know, and, and we're really pleased to see that Ontarians are, look, are looking to get their flu shot. I think, you know, we, we've spoken before and we've, we've said that the flu shot is the single most effective thing that we can do to prevent the flu and its complications, and it's particularly important this year. Um, so I want to stress that, you know, while there may be some circumstances and challenges to booking and securing appointments and getting the flu shot right now, I want to make sure people are not discouraged and want to stress that getting the flu shot is the right thing to do. Um, now, in terms of, of the supply, there, there isn't a shortage, but the way that we distribute flu vaccine across the province is that we try and make sure that all communities have equitable access to the flu vaccine. And so it's because of that logistics um, sort of and the delivery that it sometimes takes a little bit longer. So when we have that that high demand and that high front loading of demand, it just means that we You know, what we had planned in terms of the the logistics and shipping cycles to get the vaccine to all communities, we, we run through that a little bit faster than what's expected. But there's more coming. Um, so so what I would say is, you know, I want to encourage people to, to continue to try and get the flu shot, but to be patient. I think all all providers are, um, you know, are, are ready to provide the flu shot and and have made some changes to encourage patients, for example, to make appointments wherever possible. Some have online booking tools. Some are doing so over the phone. Um, all that to, to try and reduce those lineups and ensure social distancing to protect staff, and most importantly, the public. Um, Yeah, I wanted to
0: ask you a little more about that, because speaking of logistics, mm -hmm. I heard it's taking longer to actually administer the uh, flu shot because of uh, COVID protocols this year.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, to ensure the safety of, of everybody who's coming into the pharmacy, I think that's that's why we're seeing a lot more people doing appointments, because it allows the pharmacies and the staff and, um, you know, providers to, to ensure that they're, they're sanitizing between patients and ensuring that they, um, you know, ensure that they, they can maintain social distancing and, and proper, um, you know, flow of traffic within the pharmacies for people who are coming in looking for for the vaccine as well.
0: Yeah, I read earlier today where last year it took- it took you roughly two minutes to administer the flu shot. It's taking upwards of 10 now because of COVID protocols. Does that sound about right? Um,
2: in- Circumstances, Yeah, I think I think it could be, um, you know, we've heard a range of, of time, but I, I think it is safe to assume that it might take a little bit longer this year. And we know that uh, we know it takes longer because there's additional sort of sanitization, additional screening that has to be done before each pharmacy comes into the phar- uh, before each patient, pardon me, comes into the pharmacy to ensure the safety of staff and the public and, and other customers in the pharmacy. So it is taking a little bit longer. And I think that's also why, you know, we're all working together to ensure that as many Ontarians can have access to the flu shot you know I think we just we all need to work together and be patient and, and, and um, work you know we're continuing to work with um, with public health and with physicians and government to ensure that everyone has equitable access to the vaccine um, so we're not concerned that it's you know it's, it's going to be a shortage or, or that there is a shortage it's just um, you know, it's just a timing issue. And I think it's, you know, I, I want to reassure uh, people that, that the vaccine is not short. Ontario has ordered um Upwards of 15% more flu vaccine doses than than we have in past years, and that includes an additional uh, that includes 1.3 million high dose flu vaccines for seniors, uh, who can also get their flu shots now at the pharmacy. Um, so we've planned well for for what we knew was going to be high demand. Um, it's just it's just a matter of getting um, you know those flu shots delivered to all the communities across the province and ensure that um, everyone has access or equal access to that flu vaccine. All
0: right, just. For- Finally, what is your advice to anybody who's having trouble finding somewhere to get their flu shot? Is it basically patience and persistence?
2: I I think it is patience. I think over the the coming weeks, we're going to see, you know, more flu shots being delivered. I think, um, you know, typically in in previous years, we saw people getting their flu shots throughout the month of October, November, December. um, And we're seeing a lot more of that demand at the beginning of October this year. So I think be patient. Um, highly encourage folks to continue to seek the flu shot. It is very important to get, um, but but be patient, and I think uh, work with your local community pharmacy um, or, or other providers to um, to access the vaccine. And uh, I, I think I think a little bit of patience. I think we will all work together and ensure that everybody gets access to the vaccine.
0: You bet, Sandra. Appreciate the time and thanks so much for the update this afternoon.
2: Thanks so much for having me, Jeff.
0: Sandra Hanna is the CEO of the Neighborhood Pharmacy Association of Canada. Okay, with COVID case numbers rising and a growing testing backlog, we do have word today that rapid tests set to arrive this week here in Canada will hopefully provide some much-needed relief. And for more on this, we're joined now by Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, vaccine researcher and family physician. She joins us on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Dr. nice to speak with you as always. Thank you for having me, Jeff. All right. First off, uh, what do we know about these uh, tests that are set to uh, arrive uh, here? Are they going to be accurate, and are they going to ease the backlog in testing, do you think?
3: Absolutely fascinating stuff. It's exciting because the tests are promising us results, imagine, within 15 minutes. So right now, it takes a day. Actually, if you read the website, up to four days to get our test results. So this has the potential to be a real game-changer. The accuracy of the test in Toronto is going to be pretty high, actually, so it's pretty exciting. But if you take that same test to a place that hasn't seen very many cases, the accuracy actually falls when the numbers in the population are far less. So in a place like Toronto or Montreal, it's a great test to, to put out. It's true it's not quite as accurate as the PCR testing. The PCR testing remains the gold standard. But for now, fast results, no lineups, it sounds really exciting to me.
0: All right. Uh, is it also a, also sorry going to uh, be a bit of a relief for those that uh, you know can't book an appointment or feel hesitant to or feel as if uh, you know the lineup is uh, just too long? Uh, I'll take my chances until I'm really feeling uh, symptomatic. Are people going to be more apt to go and uh, get tested? Will testing be more available because of rapid testing?
3: Well, as barriers are taken down people will be more inclined to get the testing, 100%. But I see Jeffrey has the long-term view, because I think initially when these tests come out, and, you know, understand, Health Canada has committed to buying millions of these tests, but it's not like they're going to be all distributed all at once. Initially, what will likely happen is that it'll be prioritized to long term care facilities, hospitals, healthcare workers, those over 60, those with chronic conditions, potentially people working in like meat packing plants, like those are probably going to be the first priority individuals. So when will I be able to just go down to my local pharmacy and get a nasal swab and have my answer in 15 minutes? That's probably well into 2021.
0: Joined by Dr. Iris Garfinkel, vaccine researcher family physician. Doctor, I also wanted to talk to you about hockey, minor hockey, uh, this afternoon. All the talk the last week or two has been about Halloween, but let's bring up the other H word, uh, hockey, because there's now word that uh, minor hockey uh, might be uh, canceled, much like uh, Halloween has been uh, discussed, uh, whether or not it's safe to proceed. Uh, What's your thoughts? What's your take on uh, minor hockey? Is it okay for kids?
3: Really a tricky area. And you know something, I wish I could just give you a slam-dunk, one-size-fits-all answer. But the bottom line is this. Kids are playing close to one another often. They're practicing together. They're breathing on each other. And while it may not even be that high a risk to them, because we know, actually, you can count the number of children who've died from COVID-19 in Canada on less than two fingers. Like Really, it's been almost no deaths in kids, despite that we're approaching some 10,000 deaths And adults, you know, so what's concerning, though, is they're vectors, right? So if, if they get the virus, we know that they could potentially transmit the virus. So that's the problem. Can they social distance in hockey? I ask you. That's hard. Will the entire audience be wearing masks? That's a whole other uh, another proposition. And what about the yelling and screaming? And what about all the virus that goes, you know, through, not directly through the front of the mask, but around the sides? It, so there are serious, safe and healthy issues. Like, this is not a one-size-fits-all for all of Canada, but, you, you know, we're in a pandemic now. So for Toronto, uh, That's
0: the traffic. Well, I have heard rumor is hockey parents tend to be vocal at times. uh, A little bit. Yeah. (laughs) Having said that and knowing that, I guess the other side of the equation, though, is what about exercise when it comes to the mental well being of our kids and and really for parents as well? I mean, minor hockey is obviously a great escape for both kids and their parents. And do we have to balance that with some of these uh, other concerns uh, that you've just raised, that being in close proximity, sweating, heavy breathing and such?
3: Well, let's talk about those exercise benefits in kids. They're actually not that different than adults. You know, it lowers depression. It lowers anxiety. And this is an interesting little pearl. It actually helps ADHD. Like, that's a biggie, right? Because, you know, what what do we do? We give these kids drugs, But it's not just about drugs. It's about pills and skills. The skills matter. And where do people get those skills? Kids get those skills from on the ice. Like that's one of the places. It also boosts children's confidence. So, you know, it's not just a question of the weight and cardiovascular health. These are well known, but it reduces cancer risk in adults. But kids have a lot of benefit from exercise, but they can get that exercise in other ways. It doesn't necessarily have to be within the minor hockey league and
0: on the ice rink. All right. As you mentioned off the top, no easy answer here, that's for sure, when it comes to a minor hockey. Uh, Dr. Gorfinkel, appreciate your time as always. Thanks so much.
3: Many thanks, Jeff. All the very
0: best. You as well. Dr. Iris Gorfinkel, vaccine researcher and family physician. And just a reminder that you can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 1 till 3 Eastern. Just tune in at 640toronto.com. Also, find us on Spotify. Search my name, Jeff MacArthur, or download us wherever you find your favorite podcasts.